0: Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. Uh, Before we read our text for today, I'd just like to give a little bit of context. Uh, Samson is probably the most well-known judge in the book of Judges, and arguably is one of the most well-known characters in the Bible. And his story is a wild ride. We see him killing lions with his bare hands, fighting against scores of Philistines alone. His temper flares irregularly, and he's supposed to be a Nazirite. But to put it nicely, he's not done the best job. One of the unique things about Samson's story is that in it, there is not one Evident, or There's not one instance where the Israelites cry out to God for deliverance. If you look at the book of Judges, every major judge, and even most of the minor judges, contain some plea from the Israelites for their God to rescue them. And yet, in chapter 15, uh, we see this, this wild story where Samson burns the Philistine fields to the ground by tying foxes together and putting torches on their tails, He goes on a murderous rampage after the death of his wife and 3,000 Israelites come to confront him, not to thank him, but to turn him over to the Philistines. They're terrified. They've given up on him being a deliverer. Instead of a savior, they see him as a threat. And when they hand him over to the Philistines, Samson kills 3,000 of them with the jawbone of a donkey. This man clearly cannot be stopped. That is, and tell our story today. Our text this morning is Judges 16, verses 4 through 31. Normally, I would ask you to stand, but because of the length of our passage, know that it is also good and right to listen to the word of God while sitting down. (laughs) So once you've found that passage in your Bible, uh, I encourage you to follow along. It's also on the screens if you'd like to do so. Judges 16 beginning at verses 4, reading through the rest of the chapter. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him and humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver." So Delilah said to Samson, "'Please tell me where your great strength lies "'and how you might be bound that one could subdue you.' "'Samson said to her, "'If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings "'that have not been dried, "'then I shall become weak and be like any other man.' "'Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, "'and she bound him with them. "'Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber.' And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as thread of flax snaps when it touches fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me where your great strength lies so that you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them. And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in in her chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, Then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he woke from his sleep and he pulled away from the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul became vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my great strength will leave me. And I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called to the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. The lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in her hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistine seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground mill in the prison, but the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered a great sacrifice to their god Dagon to rejoice, and they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their god, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed so many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to a young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about three thousand men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me. And please strengthen me this once only, O God, that I may be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. His brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zoar and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah his father. He had judged Israel twenty years. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, open our hearts to your word. We know that we can glean nothing from it without your help. May this challenging text be a blessing to us. Fill us with both a righteous hatred of sin and an ever deepening love for you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I think Brynn might want to try and switch the mic. Is that what's happening? No? We're good? Five minutes? All right. We're going to see how it works. What time is it, Mr. Fox? was the favorite game of my PE class when I was in kindergarten. The game is played with one person, Mr. Fox, on one side of the gym, uh, facing the opposite direction of the rest of the class. And in a melodic voice, the rest of the class would ask, what time is it, Mr. Fox? And the Mr. Fox would respond. "Ah, It's 7 o'clock. 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and whatever o'clock it was, the class would take that many steps forward. And as the class inched closer and closer to Mr. Fox, eventually Mr. Fox would yell that the clock had struck midnight. And when midnight is called, all chaos ensued. The entire class tries to run back to the starting line from an ever-increasing number of lackeys to try and not be tagged. So the methods for this game varied. Some students with great boldness would take the biggest steps that five-year-olds can muster, sometimes even ending up in front of Mr. Fox before midnight is called. There were others who would take ever-increasingly smaller baby steps, just inching farther and farther forward. Now, I know we don't know each other well, but I also know what you're thinking. Lincoln is clearly built for speed. And I would love to tell you that you're right, but you're not. Uh, I don't think I ever employed the large step method. I don't think I was ever the last one standing. And baby steps were always my go-to method. And while this is just a fun and silly children's game, I think it also gives us an illustration into our story and into Samson's story. Every Christian has certain biblical characters that we, we want to identify as. We want to emulate. We've all heard the exhortations, pray like Daniel, love like Ruth, uh, and, and pray like Hannah also. We strive to emulate the evangelistic heart of Paul. And we all wish that we had more of the vigor and less of the confusion uh, of the apostle Peter. But this morning, I would argue that every Christian can identify with Samson. And it's not the great hair and it's not the amazing physical strength, but it is an ongoing and lifelong struggle with sin and a consistent succumbing to temptation. As we've seen in Samson's story, he is less than a moral exemplar, to put it lightly. He is constantly engaged with behavior that we would say is in direct conflict with the Nazarite vows, or even godly behavior in general. In chapter 16, however, we see something new happen, something that hasn't happened before. Samson falls. For perhaps the first time in his life, Samson tasted genuine defeat. After a lifetime of playing with fire, we see Samson finally get burned. And it's through this lens that I want to look at our text this morning. Playing with fire and healing for the burned. Playing with fire and healing for the burned. And while we walk through our passage, I'd also encourage you to keep the following thing in mind. Because Jesus has overcome sin and death, we must daily be killing our sin and temptation. In chapter, in chapter 15, we see Samson playing with actual fire. But I would argue that it's in chapter 16 that fire is far more dangerous. He traded out torches and burning fields for something harder to see something that's harder to quit, and something that's harder to recover from. In James 1, we're given a warning about flirting with temptation. We are told that we are lured away by our own desires, and that after desire has been conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when fully grown, gives birth to death. This is the story that we find in our text. Before we move any farther, I do want to make something abundantly clear. Delilah and the Philistine women in Samson's story and also in the book of Judges are the embodiment of sin and temptation. And that has nothing to do with the fact that they're women, it has nothing to do with the fact that they're of a different race or ethnicity than the Israelites. They are representatives of sin and temptation in our passage because they draw Samson and the Israelites away from God. We'll expand on this more in a little bit. Throughout our story, we watch Samson time and time again make bad decisions. He never seems to learn. Not only does he pursue Philistine women, Uh, He pursues Philistine women consistently, which doesn't only grieve his parents, but it's in direct conflict with the commands of God. In Deuteronomy 7, God said to the Israelites, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn your sons away from following me. And despite this command and warning, we see Samson ignore it. And yet there's something different about Delilah in comparison to the other woman in his story. She's the only one who has a name. If you look back at Samson's entire story, not one woman has given a name. We're not given the name of his wife in chapter 14. At the beginning of chapter 16, there's a nameless prostitute. Not even Samson's mother has a name. She's simply referred to as Manoah's wife. So when we see this change, it jumps off the page at us. It's it's a clue that the narrator's trying to get us to pay attention to this detail. There's something different about Delilah. There's something special about her. And it's that Samson loved her. In this, we see one of the many dangers of sin. The reality of the situation is that temptation is not only found in the enticing things that are outside of us, But temptation also comes from within. John Owen described this situation in terms of defending a castle. No matter how many soldiers you put on the ramparts, no matter how tall or thick the walls are, a castle cannot stand against enemies if there are traitors that are inside the gate. And you and I, brothers and sisters, have traitors living in our hearts that are waiting patiently to throw open the doors to every great sin and temptation samson allowed delilah to take root in his heart like he had no sin before and our sin seeks to do the same thing it is outwardly enticing it excites our sinful desires inside of us and as a result we prepare a place in our hearts for it to dwell And our sin is not content with a passing glance or a visit every so often. Our our sin desires to have our full attention, our full devotion. Our sin desires to have our love. And that's what sin is. It's a choice to love something other than God for a moment or for a season. And unlike our sin Delilah's not even shy about what she's trying to do. In verse 6, we see that she says, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound so that one could subdue you. And while that may seem playful, and it seems like that's how Samson took it, there are some extremely dark implications to subdue. That word is elsewhere translated torment, violate mistreat, and some significantly worse. Our sin desires to have our love, but it never loves us back. And rarely, if ever, is it as honest with us as Delilah is with Samson. Our sin doesn't yell and scream, I am trying to kill you. Instead, it wants to make our hearts sing Oh, if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. <laughs> and the Apostle Peter tells us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. But why does Samson need to be afraid of lions? He can kill them with his bare hands. So Samson plays the game. He takes the first steps down the path that we know are going to result in his downfall. And you can almost picture it as Samson is awoken in the middle of the night and he he flexes getting up from bed and perhaps breaks the bow strings and the ropes without even noticing that he's done so. And he laughs as he enjoys his participation in the game. But we see things escalate. In verse 13. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Samson had already given Delilah purchase in his heart. And we see that her continued temptation draws him ever closer to danger. He hasn't fallen yet, but it's likely that in this verse we see him pass the point of no return. He's almost given the secret away. He's mentioned his hair. And we watch as he plays this game of ever higher stakes, taking ever increasingly larger steps. He has succeeded in outrunning death so many times, never tasting defeat. So it's only a greater and greater danger that will satisfy this growing sin. And we do the same thing. We all have our own Delilahs that are drawing us away from God. For some, it's lust. A glance turns into a stare, which turns into a fantasy, And that snowball then continues. For others, it's intemperance with alcohol. An occasional drink for some can slowly become a dependency that needs to be met daily. Sometimes we don't even realize that we're creating idols for ourselves to serve because they began as good things. A relationship becomes infatuation. A job becomes an identity. Children or grandchildren, a love for them can lead to a neglect of discipleship and a failing of a training up in the way they should go. Whatever sits on the throne of your hearts, brothers and sisters, if it is not God, it is an idol. And that idol will demand your love. As we see with Samson, that idol, that sin, will force us to start making concessions to it. We begin to slowly justify what we're doing. What was once a line that we will never cross becomes an obstacle that sits in our way to gratifying our sinful desire. And when we cross that line We continue to inch closer and closer to the fire. All while believing that you and I will be able to outrun midnight when it's finally called. But that never happens. We never stay fast enough. In one of his most famous lines in John Owen's The Mortification of Sin, he says, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. If we do not daily do the work of putting our sin and temptation to death, if we choose to play the game, to play with fire, it will burn us, and it will kill us. And that's exactly what happens to Samson. He's worn down by this constant assault from Delilah's questioning. Worn down during his race with sin. And he falls. Looking at verse 19 through 21. She made him sleep on her knees and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to torment him and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke up from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. Perhaps... The saddest verse in this entire chapter is the latter half of verse 20. Samson thinks to himself, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not realize that the Lord had left him. There comes a point in playing this game with sin that we realize that we can't get away. We also then realize that it hasn't been a game at all, and we've been getting burned the whole time, but we haven't descended all the way. Sometimes we recognize that the sinful things that we're doing are going to take us over the edge, but we can't stop, and sometimes even worse, we don't care. And I think we can sit and point fingers at Samson, look at all the things that he's done wrong, all the ways that he's a poor Follower of the Lord. But his story demonstrates a sobering and honestly a terrifying truth. God gives us the desire of our hearts. When God is that desire, he gives us himself. But when our heart's greatest desire is sin... He gives us to our sin. Yes, God even gives Christians, his own people, to prolonged seasons of sin. And in these seasons, it can feel like there is no way out and that we have been abandoned by our God. Those terrifying seasons can be both a wake-up call and a gift. God uses them to show us the horror of a life dedicated and devoted to sin and he reminds us of our inability to conquer sin on our own. Because of Christ's blood, we are in a state of being able to not sin. But we eagerly await when we are called home and we are in a state of being unable to sin. But that time has not yet come. After the fall, we've all become like little arsonists. We love playing with fire. We love starting fire in our own lives. And it's not just playing with fire we enjoy. Our sin in a sick way makes us enjoy the getting burned. Now after Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection, we've been given a new call. Instead of starting fires, we're now called to put them out. Not just those that are raging, but snuffing out every single spark of sin that we see rise up in our hearts. We're called to not play the game at all. And though we have this new calling, there is a war that rages inside of us. We live on one hand in a state of grace, but our sin wants to pervert that grace using it as a license to sin. Those who have been born again do have the power to resist sin. But make no mistake, if we are not actively and daily putting that sin and temptation to death, we will choose sin over God nearly every time. We do not daily fight this fight because it needs to be won, but because Jesus has already won won it. Jesus has overcome sin and death. We must be daily killing our sin and temptation. Brothers and sisters, though we see the dangers of sin and the clear warning in Samson's story, we can also see that there is good news as well. Look with me at verse 22. But the hair of his head began to grow again After it had been shaved. Though you and I so often fail in the fight. Sometimes even willingly and willfully. God will not stop fighting. And God will not lose. He had not yet given up on Samson. Though Samson had been so unfaithful in his vow. And though he had been humiliated and humbled. God remained faithful. Our sins have been paid for in full, but there are still consequences. And in Samson's story, we see how gruesome those consequences can sometime be. But it's after we have been burned, sometimes severely, by our sin that God gives us this amazing gift of healing. He reminds us that we cannot do it on our own And he gives us the assurance that we've never had to. I can understand why some Christian traditions want to emphasize the work that we do. The things that we bring to the table. Even those who say that they made the decision to follow God and he chose them as a result. But I do not believe there are many things more exciting or beautiful than in God's sovereignty and his infinite goodness and love for us that he reached out and took us as his possessions while we were still sinners. In verse 28, we see Samson offer an imperfect prayer, like so many of ours so often are. He reaches out to God, hoping and praying that he might return to him because he felt abandoned. He recognized something fully that he may have only recognized partially throughout his life. He was completely reliant on God for his strength. And without him, he could do nothing. Though imperfect in this prayer, Samson realizes and recognizes his own brokenness. He recognized his need for a strength that comes from one outside of himself. Presbyterians sometimes have a reputation for being less than a visibly emotional people. Uh, I think my favorite uh, name for us is the frozen chosen. (laughs) But what I'm about to tell you uh, genuinely made me so excited that I audibly cheered twice I slapped the table that I was working at and I physically had to get up and go tell two other people what I'd just read. It's the least Presbyterian that I've felt in years. (laughs) Michael Wilcox's commentary on Judges, especially on verses 28 through 30, brings us back to the beginning of Samson's story. Before he was even born, God said, the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. That means that God, not Samson, was responsible for keeping and upholding that vow. God made the promise to him. Throughout Samson's story, we see him doing a poor job of keeping this vow to the Lord. Throughout the book of Judges, we see the people of Israel constantly turning to other gods. And that's the same story we see throughout the entire Bible. Going all the way back to the garden, when given the opportunity to have a perfect relationship with God, we see Adam and Eve choose something else. We cannot help but dive into the fire of our sin. And yet every time, going back to the covenant of grace in the garden, to the covenant that God makes with Abraham, and even now in the story of Samson, when the people of Israel had given up on asking for salvation and having a broken hero like Samson, God continues faithful. And he repeatedly says, you are faithful mine. He is the God of the covenant. He is the God who will not let his people go, and he is the God who remains faithful no matter how many times you or I try to run away. Second Timothy 2.13 tells us, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And we see this in perfect clarity. In the person of Jesus Christ. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Instead of being a temple, in a temple, our Savior was in a garden when he prayed for the strength, for the task that laid before him. He willingly offered up his life. Bearing the burden of every stray thought or willful sin that you or I have ever committed. And he took that sin to death, the death that you and I deserved to die, conquering it on our behalf. And out of his abundant mercy, God chose us before time began. And though we so often play with fire, God's mercy is for those who recognize their burns and their inability to heal them on their own. One of my favorite books and a book that changed my life is the Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning. I think Stephen actually might have quoted it last week. But before beginning, Manning gives a warning about who this book is and is not for. And I think that that warning applies to our faith as Christians as well. Christianity is not for the fearless and the tearless. It is not for those who believe that they have kept every commandment. It is not for the complacent who hoist over their shoulders a tote bag of honors, diplomas, and good works, actually believing that they have made it. It is for the bedraggled, the beat up, and the burnt out. It is for the poor, weak, sinful men and women with hereditary faults and limited talents. It is for the wobbly and the weak need, who know they don't have it all together and are not too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. God does not ask us to be perfect when we reach out to him. God does not ask us to have our sin conquered when we reach out to him. All he asks is that we recognize the inability in ourselves to rescue ourselves and that we rest in and rely on his amazing grace. Though we so consistently fail, the reason we strive daily to kill our sin is because Jesus has already overcome sin and death on our behalf. In his commentary on judges, Dale Ralph Davis compares Samson to General Ulysses S. Grant from the Civil War. Many people wanted General Grant to be fired because he had a horrible public reputation and a pretty significant drinking problem. But President Lincoln said that he could not do without General Grant because General Grant fought. We're told at the end of chapter 15 and 16 that Samson judged Israel for 20 years. Though we don't have all the details, I find it hard to imagine that for that entire 20-year period, Samson must have been consistently and constantly fighting the enemies of God's people. Though he often sinned, he never stopped fighting. And the author of Hebrews uses him as an example of faith, one who is made perfect in his weakness. So I leave you with this final charge, brothers and sisters. Be daily at the work of putting your sin to death, every day for the rest of your life. There will be seasons When your sin will beat you, and it may even hold you down for a time, but rise again. Never stop fighting, because the fight has already been won on your behalf. Please pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father and righteous Judge, we come to you with open hands and hurting hearts. Help us each day to drink deeply from the boundless grace that your Son has provided for us. Each day, fill us with your Spirit so that we might fight all the more fervently against the sin that lives in this mortal flesh. Lord Jesus, we eagerly await the day when you return and you put sin and death to death once and for all, and for that glorious eternity of inability to sin gazing upon your wonderful face forever. Oh, Lord, give us that excitement for that day. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.